Well, it was last month that I had the privilege of beginning here preaching on the subject of the jealousy of God. I have to say, the Lord really placed this very subject on my heart because I do believe that this is such a crucial subject. God is jealous for his glory. And he is jealous for the devotion and love of his people. I believe that this truth, this concept of the jealousy of God is one that anchors our souls and helps us to think about our priorities as Christians. It's a truth that reminds us that our lives are not our own, but we are God's possession. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Everything we do is to be to the glory of God and for the child of God, This is a joy. It is our chief joy. I also believe that it helps us to think about our affections as Christians. The natural man, as we learned recently in Romans chapter 1, does not give glory to God, nor does he what? Give thanks. So the fact that this is your desire, your joy to give God glory and give him thanks, mark this, that's a miracle. That is a sign of God's work of grace in your own lives. And for this, we ought to give him thanks. But this is a battle. On a daily basis, we find that the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Satan is constantly inviting us to join him in giving ourselves over to pride, self-exaltation, arrogance, hedonism. It is a battle, but it is a good battle. And when we are frail... We need to seek God's grace and his strength to be renewed in this privileged priority of giving him glory in all that we say and do. Last Lord's Day, I covered the subject of what prophetic revelation is as somewhat of an extension of what I shared at the conference in New Jersey last time. We went through John chapter 19, and we just briefly talked about, mostly verse 10, we talked about how it is that God is glorified through our genuine worship. And we looked at how it is that John failed in the moment where he bowed down and worshiped the angel. And the point being made is, is that what he did really exposes the frailty that we all possess There was something within human nature that wants to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so this is a part of the battle that we must face on a daily basis. But again, it's a good battle. We then talked about how it is that God is glorified in and through his messengers. And we expounded upon that and considered that in view of the fact that the angel referred to himself as a sundulos, a fellow bond slave, 
and then called himself an echoed tone, calling John an echoed tone, himself an echoed tone, and all his fellow servants echoed tones, carriers, holders of the testimony of Jesus. That's what we are. And that's a great privilege. That's why I think of the signs on the exit doors. You are now entering the mission field. You're doing so every time you walk out this building as the echo tone, the carriers of the testimony of Jesus. And we talked about how it is that, as the angel declares, that God's prophetic revelation equals or is the very testimony of Jesus. Pure, holy, without corruption. God's word, God's prophetic revelation is indeed infallible. Why? Because as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos, the very breath of God. That's why it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It doesn't bear the corruption of human thinking. And that's why it is so profitable. All these principles are so key. They're so true. But I felt terrible and guilty somewhat after going through all those verses in Revelation 19 just to get to verse 10 because we passed up a lot of wonderful truths in that chapter. And if I may, I'd like to turn your direction back to Revelation 19 I'd like to consult that once again to launch us into this discussion of the sovereignty of God. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, John describes the vision that was given to him where he says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her and the second time they said Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That word, reigns, comes from the word basiluo, which speaks of the idea of a kingdom. What do kings do with respect to their kingdoms? They reign. Our God, who reigns, over all things, does so as the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the one who possesses Pantos all Kratos might. 
That very term, that very language brings us to the notion of monarchy. Monarchical power, monarchical rule, monarchical authority. In a word, sovereignty. Brethren, we're going to be talking about the name Sovereign Grace Bible Church. You know, I've got to say, when I saw the name of the church as I was considering various flocks and was discussing, having conversations with a number of churches, when I saw Sovereign Grace Bible Church, I thought to myself, well, this looks hopeful. Don't take that in a bad way, but uh, you'd see some of the names of these churches and you think, I don't know what this is, but uh, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, I thought, that's a great name. When you think about it and when you unpack the name, first of all, we are a church working backwards. We're a church, which means we are the called out people of God who are his possession through his work of redemption The fact that we're a Bible church means that we have one foundation. And that foundation has been given to us through God's prophetic revelation, again, as we've already talked about, that is without corruption and is entirely profitable. When we talk about grace, what is our confession to the world? Our confession is, is that we boast not in ourselves, but in God in who's given us the unmerited gift of our salvation. And when we use the word sovereign, what we're saying is, is that the grace that has been given to us is not something that we somehow cooperatively received, but it is something that has been sovereignly given by Almighty God And when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that he is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and he possesses all dominion, all power, and all authority. Brethren, I hope that you will first of all forgive me. I say this a lot when I preach. Um, At the conference site, I ask for forgiveness to my Spanish teacher in high school because uh, I didn't pay attention and couldn't can't speak a word of Spanish. Shame on me. But I'm going to ask for forgiveness because somehow I'm going to spend, I think, just two weeks on the subject of sovereignty. How dare I? This is a vast subject, which could easily take a lot longer, but I just am going to try to, anyway, keep our study somewhat brief so that we can keep a pace in this study. But I'm going to admit it right now, this subject is so vast, so beautiful, um, that we could say a lot more about it. But I believe that our introductory study concerning the sovereignty of God will increase us as worshipers of God and will increase our love for our Lord and our admiration of him. All these terms, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, have their root and foundation 
in our almighty Lord, who made us, he redeemed us, and we serve him not on the whim and will of our own imagination and thinking, but we serve him on the basis of what he has revealed in his word. And we do so knowing that he is the Lord of all. You know, let me say one other thing as a preliminary statement before we begin a few other statements. I don't know if you've ever had somebody say this to you, but I've had people say to me, you know, the study of theology, it's just this ethereal thing and it's just very impractical, the study of theology. Brethren, the study of God, the doctrine of God is the most practical study that we could ever engage in. Because the study of God purifies our hearts and minds about who it is that we profess to know and worship. When Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds, the the ongoing notion of renewal is very important. What that tells us is, is that our minds are not static things, but our minds have to be cleansed and renewed so that we have a proper and right understanding of who God is. And it's not enough to say, well, I've studied the subject of, of God's sovereignty and now I'm finished. If you think that way, and I'm not saying that anyone here does that, but I've had people say to me, yeah, I've studied that before I know all about it. You know what? No. Do not tell me you know everything there is to know about God. If you think that, you have entered into a very grave self-deception. I believe when we're in heaven, we're going to discover the, the greatness of our God forever. And we will never exhaust that infinite beauty and glory of our Lord. Now, the, the subject of, the, of theology, the subject of the study of God is deeply practical. It helps us to think about the worthiness of God to be worshipped. Again, our study on the jealousy of God brought us to that subject of his worthiness. And any careful examination of the nature of God serves as a refining fire which purges us from all our idolatrous thoughts about God which ultimately dishonor him. As Stephen Charnock has said in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, he says this, As the heathen did not glorify God as God, so neither do they conceive of God as God. They are all infected with some one or other ill opinion of him, thinking him not so holy, not so powerful, just good as he is, and as the natural force of the human understanding might arrive to. We join a new notion of God in our vain fancies and represent him not as he is, but as we would have him to be, fit for our own use and suited to our own pleasure. We set that active power of imagination on work, and there comes out a gold calf whom we own for a notion of God. Human nature likes to make the golden calf. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we would shun that and have a greater appreciation and admiration of God as he is, as he is sufficiently re- revealed in his, world, in his word. And so this morning, 
I will introduce us to the subject of God's sovereignty. This is just a sample platter. Again, this, ter- this term, this word, deserves much more time and attention than we'll end up giving it. But the first thing we need to do is think about what this word sovereign means and how it is used in Scripture. There's really no other place to begin. How does the Bible even use this word? Where does it use this word? And in what sense is it used? Secondly, we need to consider, and I will say more about this next Lord's Day, but we need to consider how God's sovereignty comforts the child of God. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, again, back to the practicality of theology, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a comfort to the child of God. Thirdly and finally, and this too will just merely be an introduction to our study next week, but we'll consider how we should live in view of God's sovereignty. Again, just a bookmark for next week. But let's begin with this question. What does this term mean, and how is this word used in Scripture? Well, it's interesting. The word sovereign, if you look at this word in the English Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, the etymology and history of the book is, of, of the word is somewhat lengthy and rather complex. It takes us all the way back to a Latin term that speaks of one that is super above, one who has power and authority above others. And that translates and transfers into the Old French. By the time you get to the Old English, the word reign in sovereign, sovereign, as we say, was introduced to the word to speak of the reigning power or the authority of one who is in a monarchical role or position. Ultimately, God is sovereign. But where is this word in the Bible? Well, this is a a tricky question because English translations vary in terms of the words that they choose to convey this idea of monarchical authority. Sometimes words that are translated in some translations as sovereign, sometimes some translations will use the word lord or master. So you have a a high degree of variation between English translations. Also, we should note that there are several words in both the Greek and Hebrew uh, languages which are used in order to convey the multifaceted nature of God's monarchical authority and power. So it's rather complex. This is one of the reasons why I say that this could be a very lengthy study and analysis. But if we trace the concept of God's monarchical authority, his sovereignty, back to the Greek and and Hebrew texts and back to the Bible itself, there are two main words, two main concepts that, that merit this idea of the word sovereign. The first one has to do with the idea of dominion, dominion. The second one has to do with the word power. And I want to expand upon why those two words really are related to the idea of God's sovereignty. When we use the word dominion, we often think of monarchs in terms of the domain of their rule. Recently, I don't know if you watched it, I was careful to avoid it, the coronation of King Charles III. Um, I, I mean, it's, it was kind of sad because the history of, of his life makes it difficult to watch in, for many reasons. Um, he is officially a king, but 
is not very um, kingly, we might say. But he is identified, I think you've noticed, perhaps you've noticed, he's identified in, identified in view of the domain of his rule. He's called the king of the United Kingdom and the other commonwealth realms. That's his official title. And if you look up what those commonwealth realms are, it becomes somewhat laughable because like Canada or New Zealand, uh, they barely issue any obedience to the crown, but that's a part of his title. We can call that a part of his dominion. I think it's somewhat of an illustration of how loose and how weak kingly authorities are. And what a contrast that is to God himself, who is called in scripture the despota, the despota or despot. In the Greek, when we, when we talk about a despot, we're talking about one who owns things and that his dominion or domain of rule is characterized by all that he owns. And so you'll have monarchs who own their dominion. It's their possession. But as I just mentioned in the case of King Charles III, he has kind of a loose dominion over the kingdom that he that bears his name and title, the God, who is the ultimate despot, owns literally everything. And there are no exceptions. So Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, calls God his despota, his Lord. And after Peter and John were threatened by the council of the Sanhedrin not to preach the gospel anymore, that didn't go over very well, they returned to the disciples who then responded by saying, O despota, sovereign Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice the, the, the use of the term despota and then the, the, the description of God as being the one who created everything. They go together. Both those ideas go together. He made everything. He owns it all. He is therefore king and ruler over everything. You know, in the English, we will oftentimes use the word despot or despotic as a pejorative. We might say that someone is a ruler is despotic and say, well, he's cruel and unthinking and uncaring in his rule over the people. But you have to be careful not to assume that that's what that term is always meaning. It just simply means that it is an individual who owns his domain. Clearly, God is not despotic as sinful men are. God's rule, his, his despot, his despotic rule is that which is characterized by holiness and justice. And as the creator of all things, he owns all and has a sovereign right over everything within his creation. You know, that's a truth that is a slap in the face to men who insist that he is autonomous and separate, separate from this despot. But God's dominion can never be challenged, not in any real sense. Even though the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed Messiah, as we read in Psalm 2, 
All their threats are counted as impotent rage when compared to the God of all power. Now this then brings us to the other term that I mentioned. When we talk about God's sovereignty, the idea of his dominion is a necessary concept, but also with that, the concept of his power is essential as well. Because you cannot hold and maintain a dominion, a realm of power, a realm of authority, if you don't have the power to maintain it. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy and speaking of the second advent of Christ, speaks of the Lord as he who is the blessed, and he says, and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There's the concept of his dominion. It's an eternal dominion. And it's an eternal dominion because he is the one who has all power. The word that is translated as sovereign, in my translation of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, the word that is translated as sovereign is the word dunestes from dunamis, which speaks of power. Power. The word power is important because it would oftentimes be used to speak of a monarch because a monarch has actual power if he's a monarch at all. Most lexicons will speak to this idea of dunamis, speaking of a monarch, an individual in authority, a ruler, because such a person would have the power to rule. Without power, you don't have the ability to maintain a dominion. You know, Rome fell through its moral corruptions from within, but it also fell by virtue of the fact that it lost the power to guard and protect its territories. And both from within and from without, it crumbled. Such is the way of all kingdoms. But because God has all power, unmitigated power, his dominion is eternal. And has no end. Brethren, let me ask you to turn briefly to Psalm 115 and verse 3. Psalm 115 and verse 3. And by the way, if I haven't said so before, I I do preach from the New American Standard Translation, just in case you're wondering if things are at all different but in yours. But uh, in Psalm 115 and verse 3, the psalmist says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Contemplate that. Let that just soak into your soul. What does he do? Literally, in the Hebrew, the word 
coal, which is translated as whatever in the New American Standard, can be translated as all, I think should be translated as all, just to make sure that we know what we're talking about. Young's literal translation has a translation as follows, and our God is in the heavens, and coal, all that he hath pleased, he hath done. Everything that is his pleasure, he does. Putting it another way, what we understand is this, is that there is no disparity between what God pleases to do, what he wills to do, and what he does. This is why I oftentimes say you will never hear from the throne room of heaven the word oops. Or you'll never hear God say, you know, I wish I had done this instead of that. You know, men have their regrets, but the Almighty never does. How many of us have desired to accomplish various things in life, but did not have the know-how, the resources, or time to accomplish them? I'm just trying to get rid of boxes in my house right now, and what a failure I am. We all understand this principle. We all understand the idea of there being a disparity between what I want to do and what actually gets done. This is never the case with the pantocrator, the dunamis, the power above all powers, Almighty God. Again, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Everything. Without power, no ruler can rule. A weak ruler may issue laws, commands, and decrees, but without power to carry out such laws, commands, and decrees, all are reduced to impotent impotent boasts. How many of you have heard, I'm sure you've heard in political commentary, the employment of the example of Hitler. Oftentimes, Hitler is used as a billy club in political rhetoric, and the idea simply is this. Employing the ad hominem argument, you vilify your opponent however you can in order to discredit your opponent and then silence your opponent before they even speak. Because if you can make your opponent a monster, and if you can persuade other people that he's a monster... The debate's over. Well, that's what people imagine when they employ the ad hominem argument. It's actually an invalid argumentative method, but it's used frequently. And Hitler is oftentimes used in this sense. I call it the Hitlerization of one's political appointment, if, uh, opponent. If you can make your opponent like Hitler... You've so vilified that individual that nobody's going to listen to him. Nobody wants to be a Hitler. Nobody wants to be a Nazi. Well, kind of. What's so fascinating about the Hitlerization of others is that Hitler had power that enabled him to employ his twisted ideologies. It enabled him to give his ideologies feet and legs and hands for a time such that he could carry out his perverse desires. 
And it's interesting watching people walk about and say, well, you're a Hitler and that guy's a Hitler. And you know what the, the reality is? Is that if you had power, if, if, if the natural man had power like Hitler, who knows what they would do? We overestimate ourselves rather grotesquely. And we also underestimate ourselves in terms of what sin can do. You know, when Paul says that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, he's not just talking about Hitler. He says Jews and Greeks. Who's left on, on planet Earth after he says Jews and Greeks or Gentiles and, and uh, Jews and Gentiles? That's everybody. All are under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none that does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and their feet are swift to shed blood. All of them. Apart from grace, humanity is Hitler. Give a sinful human being a measure of power, the power of a Hitler. You can't really say that you know what they would or wouldn't do. You know what, it's a good thing we don't have the kind of power like that, especially fallen humanity. The good news is, is that God who is the monos dunamis, the great and only power, his power is holy and just. Always, not most of the time, always. That's why in Revelation 19, when John is seeing this remarkable vision and the great multitude of heaven saying, hallelujah. By the way, that word, uh, I can't remember if I said something about this word, and maybe you already know this, but that word is a command, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallel, praise, and then the pronominal suffix, ooh, you praise, who? Yah, a contracted form of Yahweh. You praise Yahweh. Whenever you see that word, know that you're being instructed to do what is right. Why are we commanded to praise Yahweh? Because he's worthy, that's why. And they're commanded to praise him because his judgments are true and righteous. In the manifestation of his power and his judgment, it is always holy and just. Unlike men who execute power and judgment against others, it is always fraught with some corruption, some frailty and sin. But our God, who has all dominion and all power, exercises his monarchical rule with purity, holiness, and justice. And brethren, we are to give praise to God for this. We serve this great king. Now, next Lord's Day, I am going to say more about this term. I'll probably do a little bit more in terms of defining things, but that's a good start. That gives us kind of a platform with which to work and think. But I want to move on to the second point here and consider how God's sovereignty comforts the child of God. God has all dominion, all power. It is holy and just and true. And that is a comfort to us. By the way, 
Last year, when I was visiting with you, I preached through Psalm 46 in part in order to encourage you and remind you of these truths. Again, knowing that you know these things, and yet knowing also that we need to be reminded of these truths. Why are we not to fear the calamities of this world in this life and the afflictions of men? Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46. This is why I went through this text. What a comfort this is. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. God is our refuge, strength, and very present help in trouble. And then then he says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah, contemplate that. That's our God. He's our protector, our shield, our fortress. We're safe in him. And then God intervenes with this statement, this command, Cease striving. And know that I am God. Let me say it again. Theology is the most practical study of all. If you can know and understand that God is God, that he has all dominion, has all power, you know what you can do? You can relax and cease from striving and rest in the knowledge of the fact that God is God. And if, he, if you are in his arms of love, you are in the safest place imaginable. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be, what does he promise? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Why? Because our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. And it is his pleasure to be exalted and glorified among the nations. And so we know he will achieve this. Again, I refer you back to the text of Revelation 19. Where John said in verse 6, I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, again commanding us to praise Yahweh, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, he reigns. Those terms go together. Having all power, he reigns with that power. And it is an eternal power that has no increase or mitigation. It is perfect. This power must never be seen as having any form of ebb and flow. There is no fluctuation to divine omnipotence, either in time or in the exercise of his power. As mere mortals, we don't really understand that. We have our ebb and and flow of power or strength, I got to tell you, after flying back from New Jersey on Friday and then preaching on Sunday, I think Monday morning, I was really wondering if I uh, was going to get out of bed. I was a little tired. Such is the ebb and flow of human strength and our frailty. But unlike the Lord, we're constrained by that frailty and by time. 
unlike the Lord, we bear these corruptions of human flesh. You know, having mentioned King Charles III and his coronation, it's remarkable to consider the the vast procession of monarchs that have come and gone and how so many of them lie in the grave. You know, I often tell people, and I've had others encourage me to do the same, go walking through a, a gravesite sometime. It's helpful. It helps us to remember our creaturely frailty, increases our longing for Christ, our risen Savior, And it reminds us of our impotence, but of God's omnipotence. Spurgeon is right when he says God's power is like himself. Self-existent, self-sustained, the mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttress throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. And this is a comfort to the child of God. In this world, we see men wielding power with recklessness and evil, And it can become fearful. But we must remember our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And he will accomplish all his good and holy will. Let me add Stephen Charnock's thoughts on this. He says this, helping us to remember that his power is not temporal but eternal since God is eternal without limits of time he is also almighty without limits of strength as he cannot be said to be more in being now than he was before so he is neither more nor less in strength than he was before as he cannot cease to be so so he cannot cease to be powerful because he is eternal His eternity and power are linked together as equally demonstrable. And God does demonstrate and has demonstrated his eternality and his unmitigated power. Just go outside and look up in the heavens. And you're watching the silent sermon of God's absolute power, whereby he simply spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And it's all his dominion. Every bit of it. Our God is sovereign. What what does Isaiah 40 say at the beginning? What does the Lord say at the beginning of this remarkable chapter? It begins with a command to comfort his people. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. And what are the words of comfort that are given? The first word of comfort that we see, there are many actually, but we're comforted by the fact that God's word, like himself, is powerful 
and eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. His word stands forever because he himself is eternal. Brethren, words of comfort also come in the 11th verse when we think of the unfailing, omnipotent love of our God. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He carries his people in his bosom with his almighty arms and there we remain and will remain forever as for the nations who rail against him the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Then he says in verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, scarcely Have they been planted? Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. For then the next time you feel tempted to fear what the nations of this earth may say or do, What the leaders of this nation may say or do, or any other nation, do not fear them. Our God is our fortress. He holds us with his omnipotent arms. We are his possession forever. And nothing can take us from the love of God. Brethren, I don't know of a more comforting contemplation than this. To know that our God's love is an unfailing love because it is omnipotent love. When we were in London and Edinburgh last year, we visited a lot of grave sites, a lot of graveyards. That may sound strange. I, I hope you don't think I have some bizarre delight in going to grave sites, but there's a lot of history in those grave sites, in those cemeteries. The one that we didn't have the time to go to was Highgate Cemetery in London. I wanted to go there because remarkably, um, Karl Marx's tomb wasn't originally in the place that it is now, but it has been moved in such a way 
that it is juxtaposed in opposition to another man by the name of Herbert Spencer. So you've got Karl Marx and Herbert Spencer on basically facing each other along the pathway of the cemetery. And that's really remarkable when you think about it. We all know that Karl Marx's ideas were backed by the power and force of the masses, which resulted in the brutal murder of over 100 million people over the years through socialism, communism, and the, de- the fleshly and sinful despotic rule of these rulers who ruled according to the image and likeness of Karl Marx. Who's Herbert Spencer? Well, Herbert Spencer helped to energize the eugenics movement. And by his influence, the medical community was empowered to commit untold atrocities against humanity through forced sterilization and through another eugenicist by the name of Margaret Sanger, who we know is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And through her work, we find the result of the murder of some 62 million unborn children just in the United States alone. That's roughly the equivalent of of 10 Jewish holocausts. All that human life obliterated. And all those who perpetuated such evil, both Spencer and Marx and Sanger and others, where are they now? They're in the grave as a testament to the impotence of humanity and the temporal nature of whatever power they may possess in this life. And we ought to tremble in view of what is coming because the God who has all dominion and all power, our Lord, he is coming again. And he will judge the living and the dead. You know, the author of Hebrews says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How remarkable that is. I just read a text that reminds us of the fact that God holds us in his hands and arms with his unfailing love as our good shepherd. But that same grip will be applied to those who have denied him and rejected him. And it will be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so when we leave, we're entering into a mission field in which we're telling people about this sovereign God, about his justice. And about the fact that God in his mercy and grace invites men and women to come to him and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ, to trust him for their salvation. I pray that if there are any here this morning who do not know Christ, come to him in faith. Embrace him in faith. Our Savior is our only hope. But I say again, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have you noticed how it is that our culture uses the word fear in a very manipulative way? 
Have you ever been called a homophobe? If you haven't, just give it a few more weeks. It's going to happen. I mean, you're either a homophobe or now it's transphobe. And brethren, you ought to think about how to respond to that and help people to think about what they're even saying. Again, I come back to this idea. We use words all the time. We don't always think about what we're saying. Phobos in the Greek means fear. I'm not afraid of a homosexual. I'm not afraid of a person who is a so-called transgender. But I do fear for them. The fear that I have is not who they are or what they are or what they're doing. The fear that I have is for what awaits them if they persist in their rebellion against the Almighty. So I come back to my apology. There's so much more to be said. But let me just end with this comment. In preview of next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about how we should live in view of God's sovereignty. We've touched on that a little bit here this morning, but I do want to cover that a little bit more. Part of what we're going to be talking about next time is the fact that this idea, this understanding, this matter of knowing that God is sovereign, this enables us, this truth enables us to obey the instruction of James 1, verses 2 through 4. Where he says, consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials. And then comes the operative verbal. Knowing. Knowing. If you take that word out of those verses, the whole thing falls apart. How are you going to rejoice in the midst of trials? It's that you're knowing that the testing of your faith produces Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm going to confess it to you. When I go through trials, there is sometimes a latency, sometimes it's even big, between my experiencing the trial and the joy in the trial. Because I have to come back to this knowing that God has a divine purpose in what I'm going through. This is why I say knowing God's sovereignty is so crucial because it helps us to go through difficult times and say, God is refining me. This is happening for a greater good and for his ultimate glory. And it's only in that context that we can rejoice. Because without the context of what God is doing, We're just going to be confused. We're going to say, why is this happening? Why me? The author of Hebrews warns his readers against the danger of forgetting what God is doing when we do go through trials. He says, you have forgotten 
The exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. God has a divine plan. He's in charge. He's sovereign. Don't fret over what you're going through. Put your trust in him. And no, our God is sovereign. What a beautiful confession this is. It is so foundational to every aspect of our life. And may God grant us the grace that we need to know these things well and walk in them. Precious Heavenly Father, There are so many more things that we could cover and discuss, but Lord, we pray in even taking this sampling in consideration of the beauty of your sovereignty, we pray, teach us, Lord, thy way. Help us in our frailty. Help us to see that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please because you are sovereign. You're good in your sovereignty. You're holy in your sovereignty. You're just in your sovereignty. So, Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word for our time here this morning and the study of it. May it all sanctify us and transform us by the renewing of our hearts and minds. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.